through the book of Revelation, which is the final book in the Bible, maybe one of the most complex and difficult to understand, certainly up there of, in terms of the most controversial. And today we're looking at four passages, or sorry, four verses, but I also want to say that um, we're going to kind of be uh, kind of steeping in uh, these verses and the themes they invite us into over the next few weeks, and I'll explain that in a moment. But let me read the passage. If you have a Bible, uh, or if you're watching at home and you want to open up a Bible or open up a new tab, it's Revelation 20, verses 15, uh, 11 to 15. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. And this is John speaking of this next vision after um, Satan has been cast into the lake of fire and evil has been defeated. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. And I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to the works by what was written in the books. And then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So before we start moving through this specificity with which this text calls us to get clear, clear on, I wanted to talk today about just the overall theme of judgment and our, I think what's safe to say, the un unease with which many people, maybe most people in our culture, but many, many people in the church hold as it relates to the themes of judgment, or God's judgment, or God's wrath, or a judgment day. Um, one person commented that it doesn't need to be said, but sometimes saying it can show the stark reality of sort of the, the comedic nature of it, which is that judgment isn't really a popular theme within our culture in a lot of ways. You can go to the bookstore and you can find Care for the soul and chicken soup for the soul and soul's awakening and the soul's flight into eternity. You know, you're not going to find the bestseller Judgment Day for the Soul. It's just not there. We're very judgment averse. And there are some legitimate reasons and maybe not legitimate reasons why. But generally, and certainly when I prepare for a message like this or the messages that we'll kind of work through over the next number of weeks, my presumption is that not a lot of people want to hear about judgment. Now, I'm only 44, and so I don't think I've really learned how to speak about this really challenging topic with a lot of deafness and clarity, so I'm going to be borrowing a lot of material from pastors and theologians that are older uh, and more insightful and wiser than myself. And I'm doing that because there are just topics in Scripture which are so dense and which are such landmines for people, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, theologically, um, culturally, that um, I think it's wise to be very careful not to simply speak out of the limitations of my own age, the limitations of my own pastoral experience, even if it's now almost two decades, 
two decades uh, expanded. I want to wade into these waters pretty carefully over the next few weeks because I do think it's important to get this right. Because the themes of God, God's judgment and God's wrath and judgment day, when these topics and all of the other attendant topics that are connected to them, when they get communicated over too short a time frame, it leaves a lot of blank spaces in people's mind. What about this? Or does that mean this? Or if you're saying this, then wouldn't it make sense over here? And if those blank spaces aren't um, informed by the biblical witness, people's imagination will fill them in. And often what I experience in talking to people about these themes is they have a, a few, a little bit of scaffolding with some biblical language, but a lot of the rooms that are filled up in that house, so to speak, come with furniture that I just would not recognize as being tied to Scripture. But they come from, whether it's depictions of hell or second, third hand passing down through other preachers and teachers, or I heard this sermon once. And so I really want to make sure that we're not just making clear the big themes that go with God's judgment, but we're also getting really clear on all of those blanks, all of those questions, and making sure the Word of God is framing and filling those understandings and not our own church background or our own theological presuppositions or just our own wild imagination. We go three steps with the Scripture and then jettison and fill the next seven in our mind's eye. So today what I want to do as we move into this passage that's about this final day of judgment, this final reckoning, a great white throne judgment, is I want to show, at least in three ways, how much our culture, and maybe some people sitting here, have underestimated how important and even necessary it is to believe in a God of judgment and to believe in a God that judges. And how much you actually need that idea in order to have psychological ballast yourself, in order for us to have social cohesion and momentum, and for our worship, which we did, to have any kind of integrity. So I just want to talk about three things. The first two I'm borrowing heavily from a Timothy Keller sermon that has been very influential to me over the years, and then I'll uh, share a final note. But these are all circling around the theme of why do we need a final judgment? And how does that truth of a final judgment actually help us? And how does the absence of it, I, I, don't, I don't want to believe in a God who judges. I just want to believe in a God who loves. Always gracious, always forgiving, always merciful. My God wouldn't judge people. How does that idea actually imperil us on a number of levels? So the first is this, and I think it's a, a really insightful um, framing understanding that will help so many people get on the right approach to talking about judgment. And that is, you need a judgment day in order for your life, even just personally, to have meaning and purpose. You have to have a judgment day in order for you to be able to say, yeah, I have the assurance that my life matters and the things that I've done in my life matters. Timothy Keller references a playwright named Arthur Miller who wrote a play called After the Fall. And in this play, 
um, Miller has a character named Quentin. And this character is speaking as a non-believing, secular person. And he says this. He says, this is the character Quentin in the play. He says, for many years, I looked at life like a case at law. There were, life was a series of proofs. When I was young, I had to prove how brave I was, or smart, or strong, or talented. And then, when I was a little bit older, what a good lover I was. And then, a little bit older, what a good father I was, and provider, and employee, and leader. And then finally, how wise, or powerful, or in his language, whatever the hell you want to fill in the blanks with. But he says, underlying it all, I I see now, and this is the character speaking late in life, that I was operating with a presumption. The presumption was that I was moving towards some kind of final verdict, some kind of final evaluation. I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I would either be justified or I would be condemned, but there would be a verdict. And he continues and he says, I think now my disaster began when I looked up and I looked for the judge and I looked for the judge's bench and I saw the bench, but there was no judge. The bench was empty. And again, he's speaking as a secular person. He said, there was no judge in sight. And all that remained was an endless argument with oneself, a pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying total despair. In other words, this character intuited that if there is no judge, if there is no final evaluation, no one saying this was right, this was wrong, this was light, this was darkness, this was the true path, this was the false path, then not just individually, but collectively we're plunged into despair. Because if there's no God, if there's no judge evaluating right and wrong, then life is meaningless. And all we're doing and all we can ever hope for is, is to sort of contend for our particular perspective of what's right and wrong and hope that somehow it wins out in this endless litigation, sometimes with ourselves, right? We can be haunted. Am I really doing the right thing? Am I living a good life? Am I really prioritizing the things that I should? That litigation within ourselves, but the litigation with other people. My wife and I were talking about this this morning, and she was saying, you know, on the other side of the world, in Afghanistan, you have the Taliban coming in and instituting their morality. But if there's no judge... If there's no God, then all morality are just power plays. And who are we to say that hanging people, torturing people, killing people under certain conditions, not a big deal? And someone might say, well, because of human rights and blah, blah. But on what basis are you, like, they don't recognize those human rights. Without a judge and without a final day that everyone will be able to be evaluated by some divine standard, it's not long before the cards of our psychological house begin to unravel because you don't have assurance that what you're doing matters. And everything really is just socially constructed. We're all simply, without a God, without a judge, we're all building houses on sand. 
And so there has to be a judgment day in order for our lives to have meaning. Again, I'm not talking talking about eternity. I just mean right now. There has to be a judgment day or our lives really can't have meaning in the sense of the word that we want it to have, which is like it actually matters, like objectively. It's not just in my head. I haven't just convinced myself or tricked myself. These things that I do are actually good. These paths that I walk actually matter. Number two, we need a judgment day in order to avoid hell on earth. Because only a judgment day in this idea that there is going to come a capital J judgment day, only that restrains the injustices that we experience in this world from devolving into hell on earth. Now, this is very, very counterintuitive for most people. And I would say many, many people in Nelson, that would be very, very counterintuitive. The idea that you need a judgment day in order to... um, prevent society from breaking down into violence. You need a judgment day, framing it a different way, in order to live peaceably. That seems counterintuitive because for a lot of people, they connect the violence that exists in the world with divine sanction. So if you believed in a God that judged, if you believed in a God that was violent, if you believed in a God that took vengeance and retribution, wouldn't that make it more likely that you would manifest those things in your life because that would make you a proper follower of that God, right? Like if God is allowed to kill and destroy and exact vengeance and if God's filled with wrath, then if I imitate that God, maybe I'm doing the right thing. And so we think that believing in a wrathful, vengeful, judging God will facilitate and grow a character in ourselves that is wrathful, vengeful, judging. And actually, the Bible goes in a completely different direction. It says, no, first of all, that premise is not true. The idea of a God who actually decisively deals with evil will not just automatically make you more aggressive, and actually, it will undercut your aggression and your violence, and here's why. There's a book called uh, Exclusion and Embrace. It's written by, it's either Harvard or Yale. I think it's Yale theologian, Miroslav Wolf. And in this book, uh, Wolf, who's Croatian, he talks about his time growing up in a really fractured, violent context. And he looks at this idea of divine judgment and says, this is our only hope for the ability to live at peace in the world. He says, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence, living peaceably in the world, requires a belief in divine judgment and divine vengeance. And he says, I understand this is going to be unpopular, especially with people who live in the West. But he says this, he says, imagine speaking to a people, as I have, whose cities and villages were first plundered, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters experienced unimaginable abuse, whose fathers and brothers were killed in the public square. You might think to encourage them to live peaceably in the face of that kind of evil. Their impulse will be to retaliate. And the question you will have to answer is, 
Why shouldn't they be allowed to? Why shouldn't they be allowed to retaliate? And he says the only way you can actually prohibit violence from begetting violence in an ever-expanding circle of vengeance and destruction is to trust that vengeance and, judge, vengeance and justice belongs to God and it will be meted out in due time. And Wolf says, violence actually thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that there is no God, or if there is a God, he'd never actually pick up and brandish the sword. And so Wolf's provocative thesis is that peacemaking and living as peacemakers in the world is only possible in the context of a judgment day. When we encounter not just, not just those kind of lower or even mid-level hardships or challenges, which we all face, but when we think of the catastrophic evil and abuse and injustice that exists, it's known to some, to some of us. Some of us may, might have been on the receiving end of it, but you can read the news. You can, when you think about addressing people who have endured that, that level of tragedy, what are you going to say to someone like that? Violence doesn't solve anything? What's your, what's your ace up your sleeve that's going to prevent them from saying, give me one reason why I shouldn't spend all of the effort for the rest of my life on exacting vengeance on this person, this group, this ethnicity, this government, whatever it is. Are you going to tell them that Violence doesn't really solve anything? Are you going to appeal to their sense of social conscience and say, well, imagine a world where everybody just acted, acted out vigilante justice. We don't want to live in a world like that, right? And you can see how paper thin. No one's going to hear those things when their lives have been decimated and say, mm, that's, a good, that's a good thought. I never thought about that. Hmm. Deep injustice calls forth deep justice, a cry for deep justice. And you can't paper over that. Romans 12, Paul writing to an early group of Christians in Rome, a seat of a lot of persecution for Christians, says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. That's a hard line. Don't repay. And you've had evil done to you. No one's denying that. Don't repay the evil for evil. Give careful thought to what you do to be honorable in everyone's eyes. And if possible, as far as it depends on you, strive to live peaceably with all people. Friends, don't avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's vengeance. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, says God. I will repay. And then a verse later he says, so don't be conquered or overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How in the world do you live out a passage like that if you don't believe that God is a judge who himself will address evil directly? Wolf would say, and I think this is, just brilliant, that the only possible way you can live out a passage like that is if you believe God will one day 
not just judge, but take vengeance against the wicked and evildoers. The wrong is done against you, both in this life and the next. And without that assurance, our heart will be continually tempted into ever-escalating violence, bitterness, resentment, hardness of heart. We won't be able to actually allow the fruit of the Spirit to take root and manifest in our lives. And then as a final undercut against the platitude of, I wouldn't believe in a God who judges, or I believe in a God of love, and the inference is there's nothing that, a part of love that's a part of judgment. Miroslav Wolf writes, it takes the quiet of a suburb uh, it takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the idea that human nonviolence is the result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and didn't make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. So we need a final judgment day so that those who have been massively and extensively victimized, we can say to them, there is a judge who will make things right. That judge is not you. There is a judge that no one will be able to escape. No one's going to get away with it. No one's going to be able to game the system. And therefore, we can put down the sword and we can live into peace. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And so in this way, the idea that God judges and will take vengeance actually allows us to escape cycles of retaliation in our own lives. We need a judgment day in order to avoid society spiraling into a hell on earth. And we need a judgment day if we want to secure a way forward that is actually filled with peace and forgiveness. And lastly, we need a judgment day in order to have faith, and by faith I here mean confidence in God. Go back to the end of that first quote from Miroslav Volf. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and didn't make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. And I hope we can see and understand that. I mean, imagine God having the, the, um, the full scope of evil, not just the manifestations that we see or we experience, but all of it, the intentions, the motivations, how long it was incubating. You, you, see, you see through all of it. And just think of whatever for you fills in the blank of, of some of the most heinous, cruel, destructive paths you can walk down. And then imagine showing up on Sunday, putting in the earbuds and going for a walk in nature to worship music and trying to worship a God whose response to that is like, we all make mistakes. No one's perfect. I mean, yeah, that's bad, but like there's a lot of stuff that person had going on in their life and who are you to judge? Who am I to judge? Like that doesn't really command respect. I wouldn't really have confidence in singing the praises of God if in, essentially, if God could just stare right into the eyes of evil and say, yeah, it's not what I'd like, but what are you going to do? 
without a judgment day, without a final day of reckoning, God's integrity is completely undermined. His holiness is undermined. His righteousness is undermined. His character as a God of justice is undermined. And his love is undermined. Because we just know there are so many situations that when you love something that is having evil and violence done against it and you kind of shrug or passively fade away, you're neither being judgy, but you're also not being loving either. Judgment is an expression of love. Evaluating certain paths and saying, you know, this is ideal, this is less than ideal, this is completely wrong, this is off the page. This needs to be turned from. There's no context in which this path is okay. If we don't have a God who can speak that decisively into our lives, I would argue we don't have a God who, who um, is, is worthy of worship. The word worship comes from worthship. We're declaring God's worthiness. His, God is, is dense. He's, he's, he's the most important thing that there is. But part of what has to be there is an insistence from his character and heart that he stands against evil and sin. In Nahum 1.3, it says, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. But then there's this caveat, but the Lord will never leave the guilty to go unpunished. Colossians 3.25 says, Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. There's no favoritism. God doesn't look at economic status or class status, uh, social standing, ethnicity, gender. It, he is going to deal equally with everybody. Isaiah 61.8, I, the Lord, I love justice, God says. I love it. Deuteronomy 32 celebrates that God is our rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. And he's upright and he's just. Psalm 9.7, the Lord reigns forever. He's established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and he judges people with equity. There's a divine even-handedness and fairness with which God judges every human being. And if you think about it, I don't even know how the story, like the, the main and major themes of Scripture even sort of cohere and begin to work together and find the resolution without a judgment day. You have these major themes of creation and law and justice and salvation. If there's no judgment day, it's kind of, it's difficult not to understand how do these not just kind of go off into the ether and have no end point. They don't um, join together to form a definitive finale and climax opening up into something powerful and new and beautiful. Without a judgment day, God, however loving, couldn't actually command our respect. He'd be a toothless lion who's never willing to, bear, to bring significant consequences to bear against evil. And if that was the case, he'd be revealing himself to be a God that is not worthy of our worship because he fundamentally would be neither just nor loving, nor righteous, nor holy. Forget about holy, holy, holy. He's not even holy. And so while the idea of a God who judges is met with so much immediate emotional resistance. I hope even one or two of these considerations helps you to see 
why it's so necessary. It's necessary for our life to have meaning and purpose. It's necessary so that vengeance and violence doesn't escalate and we can trust that God will make things right. We don't have to pick up the gun or the sword and try and fix things ourselves. And it's necessary in order for our worship to have integrity and for our songs to be sung with courage and wholeheartedness. Now, of course, the, the, the good news, the gospel of Christianity is not that God judges. It's part of the character of God that is revealed, but the gospel is that God the judge loved us so much. He sought for a way that he could condemn evil and sin without condemning us. That he could deal decisively and destroy evil and sin without destroying us. And that's where the life and death and resurrection of Jesus comes in. Jesus comes to absorb and take upon himself the judgment that we deserve and give to us the blessing and the eternal life that he earned through his perfect righteousness. We'll have more to say on that in the weeks to come. But I want you to hear that underneath and motivating the judgment of God is the love of God. And God's greatest desire is not that people are lost or condemned, but that they are saved and redeemed and restored. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. And so whoever believes in him isn't condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And Jesus says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. And that light judges the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. It lays bare who we are. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes to the light so that it may be seen plainly what they have done has been done in the sight of God. God is a good God. God is a just God. And that means God is a judging God who has set aside a judgment day. But for those in Christ, and again, we'll explain this more in the weeks to come, those who have surrendered themselves that judgment has already been passed on Jesus. And now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, as we take some more time to worship you this morning, we want to lift up your name. We want to celebrate who you are. We want to celebrate who you reveal yourself to be in your word, God, and help us to um, either sidestep or to repent, to turn away from very superficial views of the fullness of your character. It seems strange to invite people to worship and celebrate a God who would judge, but in even a few of these considerations give us pause to say, yeah, we really need to. Thank God that you care about your creation and that when evil is done, 
And when sin is done, you don't turn a blind eye. Thank you, God, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. Um, when Jeff, one of the things I do as a worship leader, I reach out to the pastor and like, so what are you teaching on this week? And, um, and so that we can kind of pick songs that kind of come around that. And when I heard the theme of, of, of judgment and I opened my, my kind of repertoire of songs and looked for all the Hellfire and Brimstone songs, which I didn't find a lot of those. But actually, um, as I was reflecting on that and praying about that, and, and Jeff touched on this at the end, is like, actually the judgment of God points to the love of God. Is that he didn't just leave us in our brokenness and our sin, but he's provided a way in Jesus Christ for us to be made right with him. If there's no judgment, then Christ died for nothing, and it makes his death meaningless. Is that not only does he say, there's punishment coming, but I've provided a way. And not just any way. I'm actually giving a piece of myself, my own son, to provide a way for you to come and spend eternity with me to be made right. That's a kind of love that, no, we can't fully comprehend. That's a kind of love that is real, that has real depth to it, too. Not a shallow love that's like, well, it's great, you do you. I, I really don't care about you. When we say things like that, that's not real love. Real love is like, I paid a price. And I made this right. And so as I was reflecting on the just, the love of God has depth. The love of God has meaning to it. And that's what, what Jeff's talking about. Is like, there's more to this than just a shallow love. There's a depth to this. So God, we, we enter into that love this morning. We recognize that this love came at a cost. But God, you were willing to pay that so that we can be made righteous in you. Not because of anything that we've done. Not that we have earned this, but because of who you are. Your judgment, your, na your justice nature also points to your loving kindness. It points to a God that wasn't far off in a chair and unaware of what was going on. You know, sometimes we have that picture of you, God, as, and, and uh, we see that in movies as your grandpa in a, a rocking chair that's just kind of wound the clock and thrown it and not caring. But God, that you are intimate, involved. You even know the number of the hairs on our head. That is a level of detail and intimacy and kindness and care. God, that we can't even comprehend. So we thank you, God, that your judgment, that you've provided a way in Jesus. And that it, again, this isn't shallow. This is real. This is a love that has paid a price so that we can be with you. God, may we take this love and as we receive it and not just keep it stored in, but God, may it overflow out of us. God, that the people of Nelson, the people of the Kootenai area, would see us and know that we're not just people that are shallow, but we have a love that has depth, and that we share that. God, may that love pour out
There's a song I'm going to sing here, and you, I'm pretty sure you will not know it. And so I want to invite you to just sit there and to receive the song. If you do happen to know it, you're welcome to join in. But just to sit in and to read these words and to reflect on them. Just to shine. 
invite you as you're able to please rise. Join me in this final song. If it's unknown to you, again, just listen to it. It's pretty simple lyrics, pretty simple melody. And join in as you uh, become confident and as you're able. I believe in the blood of Jesus that washes white as snow. I believe that the power of the gospel still makes the broken whole. I believe that the curse of sin was broken when they rolled away that stone. I believe, I believe, I believe. As I bow before you, Lord, I will rise in confidence. I will see your goodness, Lord, in the land I'm living in. No matter where I go, and no matter where I've been, I will see your goodness, Lord, in the land I'm living in. that the walls start falling when we fall down on our knees I believe that the lame go walking and the blind are gonna see I believe that the gates of hell tremble when the church begins to sing I believe I believe I believe as I bow before you Lord I will rise in confidence. I will see your goodness, Lord, in the land I'm living in. No matter where I go, no matter where I've been, I will see your goodness, Lord, in the land I'm living in. Sing it to the daughter. generation look at what the Lord has done sing it to the daughters oh sing it to the sons to every generation look at what the Lord has done sing it to the darkness that the light has come sing it to the nations look at what the Lord has done. Look at what the Lord has done. As I bow before you, Lord, I will rise in confidence. I will see your goodness, Lord, the land I'm living in. No matter where I go, and no matter where out over you no matter where I go, no matter where I've been, no matter what I've walked through, 
no matter what I've seen. I will see your goodness, Lord, in this land. I will see your kingdom come in Nelson as it is in heaven. God, we will taste your goodness and we will know that you are good. And it's not because of a lack or a shallowness, but because there is depth to you, God. There is character there and we can trust in that. Lord, I want my testimony to be your faithfulness. I have walked all the days of my life and never known a day without you. And God, I have seen your goodness. And God, I believe we are going to see your goodness continually come. We thank you for your love. We thank you for gathering this morning. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that you are here. Amen.